Lauren. Mike, do you ever wish that our office at Wired had kombucha on tap or that we described it as a physical social network or maybe that we would just remove the I and the R and the D from our name and call it we? I can honestly say that I don't think I have ever desired any of those things. <laughs> well, a lot of people bought into those ideas of what an office should be, and it didn't exactly we work out. Nope. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I am Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired. Today, we're joined by special guests, Wall Street Journal reporters Maureen Farrell and Elliot Brown. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. So the two of you have co-written a new book called The Cult of We, We Work, Adam Newman, and the Great Startup Delusion. And the book, of course, is about the startup we work. So if you aren't familiar, WeWork rented out shared office spaces, often called co-working spaces. And it was once valued at $47 billion. But that all came crashing down when the company tried to go public and had to reveal its truly wild business practices and the risks to its business. So Elliot and Maureen, you've both been reporting on WeWork for years. And before we get into the wild WeWork stories, can you first explain what WeWork started as? Right, because I think a lot of people have heard about it as a unicorn with a charismatic leader and with all of the trappings and allure of a, a modern techish company, but it actually had a business. What made WeWork and its business model different? What was it selling people? So uh, depending how far back you want to go, it, there was a predecessor company that uh, the same founders started, uh, which was called Green Desk. And um, that was an idea of we want to take some office space and instead of ch carving it up into a zillion different private offices, we should just have a bunch of you know, cubicles and little offices that people all share together and then they can go to the same coffee pot and go to the same bathroom and water, and they can pay by the month instead of paying by the year. Um, so it was this sort of just, you know, pretty basic uh, office space subleasing concept. And then the, basically the same thing happened with, with WeWork when they actually started WeWork, which was an idea of just, you know, there's a lot of graphic designers in New York hanging out, needing a space to go. There's a lot of one-person lawyers. Why are they each getting their own individual offices? Let's put them together. Let's make the walls out of glass so the place doesn't feel really cramped and light streams in through the windows. And we can have fun together. And most of all, we all, you know, they, they pay WeWork rent every month and WeWork pays some landlord rent uh, every year for 10 years. And so that that idea that WeWork would structure these leasing deals for up to 10 years, was that new in commercial office space? Uh, no, um, WeWork, uh, what was new about WeWork, so th there had been companies that had done office space subleasing before, but they usually carved things up with sort of, they didn't have a communal aspect to it. What WeWork did that was new, and they were not the only ones to do it. A lot of people were doing this at the time, and, and they even sort of just lifted this idea from someone else, was to have all of these different companies in the same larger office paying by the month um, together uh, and sharing conference rooms and, and sharing a kitchen and sharing coffee. 
the sort of shared common space was the main thing. And then WeWork eventually sort of started talking more about the community aspect of it. Um, so one of the things that helped him stand out, obviously, and the main character in your book is uh, the co-founder, Adam Newman. Something that we hear again and again in the book is that he is just able to win people over almost immediately with his idea and his vision. He has this insane charisma. Uh, how would you describe his presence? I mean, his presence physically, he's larger than, I mean, he's larger than life in so many ways. He's physically so tall. He's, I think, six foot five. He really takes up so much space in the room. I mean, he's waving his hands. He's walking around. You sort of go into a room with him and he takes over the room. He, he talks a mile a minute, but he also has this way, I guess, two other things. I mean, if connecting with people immediately, he can kind of do that thing that many charismatic people can do that make you feel like you're the only person in the room and is so interested. He can be very warm when you meet him in a kind of surprising way. And then he has this ability to talk about the future as if it's the present and just sort of, he could take the, the most kind of surprising thing, the implausible thing basically, and make people feel as if it's current and it's already happened, basically. That's just how he spoke. And he can, he can just take you into his version of reality in a way of, you know, it's very hard to do. I've rarely seen anyone do that. He also uh, just like oozes fun. And uh, especially for sort of like these baby boomer landlords who would come meet him in suits. He'd be like, hey, let's have a tequila shot. And it's like, it's 10 a.m. He's like, I know, come on. Uh, and, you know, so so he really connected, especially with older, you know, wealthy men, um, but but uh, young people, too. Like he had a real way of, of livening the uh, the office up. And so it sounds like he was really effective at getting people to buy in, both on the investing side and then also just the folks he was hiring. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, people would say that like one one former employee who worked with them forever was like, you know, his magic was not only convincing you of his crazy vision and you thinking it's real, but then convincing you so much that you suddenly are able to convince other people. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, he would really just draw you in quickly and, and you'd, you'd drink the Kool-Aid. Um, you know, he was also pretty famous for uh, developing a fast and loose culture at the company. Um, for example, summer camp. Can you tell us about summer camp? I mean, summer camp, he, he grew up in Israel. He always would say he never went to American summer camp. So he was going to recreate this in, for his all his employees. It started out upstate New York, his wife's family had a summer camp up there and they ran it. So it had, I mean, just anything you could dream of if you were a 12 year old going to summer camp, you know, uh, late rafting, kayaking, all sorts of things. I never went to summer camp, but that I would imagine being there. And, uh, you know, they always pick like a cool band that oftentimes would break out or multiple ones later that year. They had a way of finding those types of entertainment acts. But then there was alcohol was flowing <laughs> from the minute you set foot there and drugs, supposedly um, the alcohol supplied by the company. I don't think drugs were, but it was it was a wild party for multiple days. Yeah, sounds just like Wired. Right, Mike? <laughs> yeah, it sounds just like this place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and these people were, were they would fly the whole company in for this. I mean, this wasn't just New York. I mean, this was, when they were larger, they had it in the UK on like this giant estate where, you know, some... 12th century nobles would go elk hunting or deer hunting. Um, and they flew 6,000 people from around the world uh, just 
to there for for this long weekend uh, to give them large bottles of rosé and uh, some EDM concerts. Did they also just burn money at night? Because <laughs> that's what it sounds like. <laughs> it probably would have been more efficient to do it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, th- th- these things were not cheap. I think the last one was like 50, like 10 to $15 million. Um, and uh, yeah, it was sort of like everything totally under the sun. And then like Adam's personal, uh, like, compound was above all the rest of the the employees and attendees so he was on sort of the top of this hill looking down um and he had just like you know case after case of booze Uh, it was pretty intense give us a little bit of context though for how we work fit into like this group of unicorns at this time right because we're going back more than 10 years at this point the early 2010s were known for a sort of frothiness in in the tech industry if you want to call we work a tech company so how different was this or how much more outrageous was this from other stories we would hear about tech companies at the time i think we work was sort of like the stereotypical startup but with an exponent, uh, you know, multiplied by some exponent. It, like it, it, it was just uh, almost as though you, you you watched the HBO show Silicon Valley and were like, "Oh, we should do that times five. Uh, and so, <laughs> I mean, like, there's just sort of like unreal stuff that that you see in Silicon Valley, like. Adam had a spiritual advisor who would trail him around and the like executive staff would have, uh, you know, weekly meetings with him to learn about Kabbalah. Uh, so it, it, it was sort of the stuff that a lot of people make fun of about Silicon Valley culture. And then they would do it, uh, you know, many times that and then, you know, all have a lot of fun while doing it. Um, Maureen, you briefly mentioned uh, a couple of questions ago, Adam's wife, Rebecca, she's a big part of the WeWork story. Can you tell us about her? Sure. She is a big part of the WeWork story. And it's interesting in a few different ways. I mean, she they met before he founded WeWork. Um, she was sort of retroactively dubbed a co-founder. I mean, some of the things we've heard from the very early days, she was around, but not Really, at that time, she was pursuing an acting career, a directing career. And I don't know, we heard that she would give tours of the office and say she picked out the coffee and then it gave <laughs> the right vibe for the office. It didn't seem like she had a real uh, big role, but a few years later, she was made a co-founder and some of the investors were like, huh, <laughs> we missed this, but fine, whatever. Um, so she was, I mean, she played a really important role with him, you know, in a more than just a spouse. I mean, at the beginning, in the early days, she really sort of they met and she introduced him to a lot of people. She had all these Hollywood Hollywood connections. She was Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin. She was she grew up very wealthy. I think she sort of opened doors for him and sort of pushed him to think even bigger about you know what he might do and the wealth that he even wanted. I think he just saw new things with her. And then, you know, as time went on, as the company, she did get more involved. It was very much kind of jumping around in some ways, but she jumped into marketing roles and branding. And um, eventually she started a school that was a school for their children done under the WeWork umbrella that they very much paid for. So she had a, I mean, she's just had such an interesting role throughout, not, you know, in a traditional co-founder role or even a traditional spouse role. She played an an interesting part in the company. 
so at what point was WeWork at its peak? Like, you know, what years are we talking about and how many office spaces did they manage at their at their peak? Yeah, sure. So like, you know, they, they started out in 2010 with one office uh, and like 2018, 2019 was where, where they really hit the peak. And, uh, you know, basically they, they, they went from having, you know, like 17 people on the first floor when they opened to having 400, 500,000 people uh, paying them monthly rent um, by, by the time everything fell down. And so, you know, that's like the population of the Twin Cities in, in, in Minnesota or, you know, it's, it's like nearly the population of San Francisco. <laughs> um, so it's like pretty astounding. And that, that was obviously like fueled by a lot of money. Um, but but yeah, it became this like massive uh, business, in, in, at least when you, you talk about something that grows over 10 years, like it, it, it's hard to do that. And, and that was one of the more astounding things was was kind of just how quickly they were able to grow and just put these WeWork flags and WeWork signs on buildings and skylines from like on the tops of towers in Seoul and, and Hong Kong and, and, you know, New York, Boston, et cetera. And as we saw, I mean, his ambitions just grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And it just kind of took on a life of its own, this company. I mean, he, he saw himself as a world leader and sort of I mean, he was starting to keep the company of world leaders, but he really, uh, you know, was meeting people all over the world, thinking of himself. I mean, he almost started to talk about WeWork by the end of 2018 before, you know, things would start to crash and burn in the past tense. He was like, we've built this thing. Now we're going to, you know, solve world peace. And um, at this, the final summer camp, he was saying, we're gonna children without parents. We will solve that problem. We will so we will cure all the world's ills. Um, and it was just it was getting almost manic over the years. I mean, he he had a very manic personality, but it was you know let's go buy a wave pool company. We have endless capital. We'll go make all these kind of crazy acquisitions. And we know of a lot of them. They actually executed a lot. We wound up hearing that he was going after like Sweet Green. <laughs> They were going to buy Sweetgreen and many others. It was like every everything was possible for him. And he was trying to do a little bit of everything. And no one was really stopping him. He wanted to buy Lyft. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure. Why not? All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about WeWork. Ultimately, what led to the ousting of Adam Newman, uh, the fall of WeWork, and what ended up being a prolonged legal battle between Adam Newman and SoftBank. So stay tuned. Welcome back. Mike, do you want to kick us off in this one? Sure. Uh, so one big turning point in the WeWork story is Adam Newman's relationship with the Japanese firm SoftBank and its CEO, Masayoshi Son. How did that relationship form? So uh, the, they met in India. Adam happened to be um, asked to go to India to speak at this conference called Startup India. And he did sort of a tour. Masa happened to be also at this conference. They were two of the headliners along with Travis Kalanick in 2016. So they met very briefly there. They kind of hit it off quickly. But um, you know, nothing came of it until uh, later that year, Masa was coming it's such a it's a kind of a crazy story. He was coming to New York to meet with Trump. I don't know if you remember when right after Trump's election, he had this sort of parade of visitors come in to meet him at Trump Tower. 
And Masa was one of those. There was a news conference. He pledged $50 billion to invest in America. And Trump said, you know, it's all because of me. And basically on the way there, he made a pit stop, uh, which it was a 12 minute pit stop. He get, got a whole tour of WeWork's headquarters downtown. Adam prepped for it, was really hoping he would land an investment for Masa. 12 minute tour, Masa was late, said he had to go. He invites Adam to join him in the car to go uptown to meet Trump. Over the course of a 30 to 45 minute traffic snarled uh, ride to Trump Tower, they sketch out a plan and Adam gets out of the car in Midtown and he's uh, had, lands a $4.4 billion investment. And by all accounts, it was um, just as spontaneous as it sounds. Like it was really, you know, they, they sketched out on a piece of paper and iPad what the world would look like if we were grew and what this $4.4 billion investment would go towards. And yeah, Masa leaves, Adam runs back to the office, like showing this paper and freaking out. No one knows what he's talking about. And that was the genesis of their their union. <laughs> and in many ways, I mean, funding like that just begets more funding, right? Like because people start feeling a sense of FOMO and by people, I mean investors. I mean, it's actually kind of astonishing how companies like WeWork or Uber or Lyft can spend billions of dollars and yet continue to attract new investors. Um, so, I mean, you've both covered capital markets for the journal. So I wanted to ask, like, can you explain how that funding perpetuates more funding? It, I, we were, we've been living in this age and now it seems like it's starting to turn where there was just um so much private capital and it was uh, the fomo aspect is that um you know people saw facebook like pre previously if you invested in amazon you could make a return once it went public some huge gigantic return companies were going public later and later and later so there was this sense that you have to get in early and you have to get in in the private markets so that became this sort of unleashed a flood of capital, whether it was venture investment started to increase, you had the mutual funds going in to these companies. You had sovereign wealth funds. That's where Masa got part of his money. He got money from almost $50 billion from Saudi Arabia and other um, Middle Eastern uh, nations. So yeah, this flood happened and it just kind of fed off of itself. Um, and the weird thing about when Masa and SoftBank came in, was the world was starting to get small. I mean, he had tapped almost every pocket of capital he could find, and he was sort of running out of checks to find. He was about to have to go public. And then, you know, Masa came and made his 12, 12 took his 12 minute tour, and suddenly he had $4.4 billion. Yeah, we, we, um, we like to say that we work, you know, in addition to being sort of a caricature on the cultural sense of startups, it's a caricature on the fundraising front. I mean, they, every loose, chunk of money in every given year, they, they like hit it on the head and raised a ton. And I think it was, you know, this is the same of that, that class of 2010 ish of, of, of unicorns like Uber and Lyft that just, you know, hemorrhaged money. It was with WeWork, it was always sort of the same game plan. You go to funders, ask for money, say, I'm going to do something new. My business is great. It's going to be profitable, but now I need to do apartments. So I need new money for that. I need to do China. I need new money for that. I need to elevate consciousness. I, I need to raise money for that. And so each time the money got bigger and no one was really noticing that like with WeWork, every time it doubles in size, it doubles its losses. And so like, you know, if you 
suddenly need $4 billion, and then you burn through that in two years, then you're bigger and you're going to need $8 billion the next time. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think WeWork would always come back to the well. And I don't think people were really, they just kept thinking that the ambitions were getting bigger, which they were, but they weren't realizing the, the central business was also uh, th- this real hot mess. Yeah. And like one, one thread in the book is that Adam always wanted to take really big swings, right? Like the very, very beginning of the company, he would brag and tell his friends, oh, my company is going to be worth a billion dollars someday. And everything had to be as big as possible. He once turned down an early funding offer from Goldman Sachs that would have placed WeWork's value at $200 million simply because he thought that particular valuation was too low. Uh, so he was just collecting all these checks for years and years. And then what ultimately happened? So uh, ultimately, the music stopped, or he he flew too close to the sun, or you know the emperor had no clothes. Uh, there's a number of, of good metaphors, but uh, you know basically the story with WeWork was one of a, a mirage where he was able to, and the private markets were able to convince themselves for nine years that this real estate company was a tech company and and had the properties of a disruptive, fast growth tech company, even though it had the properties of a a poorly run real estate company. Uh, And then it kind of went too far. And they, in the summer of 2019, they tried to IPO because they ran out of money (laughs) and they needed more and they made everything public. And uh, the world took a look at that document that you do when, when you, you go public and they were like, WTF, what is this thing? The other part of this, I think, is that, you know, e- every player around Adam up until that point was had very little incentive to push back. I and mean, there's like a disincentive. They were all just hoping to get to that finish line and cash out whether it's you know benchmark one of the early funders they were they stood to make so much money um in the ipo you had softbank or and you had the you had the banks who were his advisors they really wanted bad fees that they were stood to get and if they were leading the ipo as advisors that's like just a huge it's huge for their branding plus their fees so it's like all these people who could have checked him along the way didn't stand up his board of directors you know they let him go and they let this company adam push the envelope way too far clearly and they're the people the guardrails that could have been there weren't there so what happened to adam he got he got booted right eventually those incentives changed and they changed very quickly and very dramatically They were on the precipice of an IPO and Adam was going out and doing this, this document came out, the world was sort of aghast looking at all these conflicts of interests, the, all the money that they were losing. And, you know, everyone just, the question sort of piled up. Adam was doing his typical pitch to investors and it just wasn't working. They were asking real questions like, why are you losing so much money? And he was doing his routine of look here, buy the company anyway. And it was became very clear that investors weren't going to buy in as it got closer and closer to the IPO. Then Elliot also wrote an article um, detailing um, a lot of 
questionable behaviors that Adam had, including probably the most extreme being the lead of this article that he wrote, which was about him taking marijuana to Israel and leaving it in the cereal box. And that was published right before they were supposed to go public. And I mean, we've heard this now during our reporting. We sort of saw it at the time that advisors, his board and others said, you know, that was a felony potentially bringing drugs on an international flight. That alone was like he, they couldn't take the company public after that was revealed. Um, So yeah, then the incentives changed and, you know, people just turned on him very quickly. His board, his bankers, Jamie Dimon, I mean, they just to varying degrees sort of started to tell him, maybe you shouldn't, if you try to stay at the helm of this company, this company might not exist because you're going to run out of money. You need money and the public markets will never accept WeWork if you lead the company. I think that the sort of the tale of Adam is, is one of founder control. And and uh, he he f- initially had and then fought to maintain that his full control over the company, even though he, he owned, you know, a fraction of it. And that's why he was able to do all this crazy stuff on the way up. Uh, you know, they were giving him billions, investors were giving him billions of dollars and also the keys to the car. Uh, and he, he's a kind of crazy guy, so he's going to do crazy things. Um, the only time that that really, uh, you lose that control, can lose that control, is when you run out of money. Uh, and so the, he needed more money to keep the train running. And when the IPO didn't work out, WeWork was going to run out of cash. And so that gave suddenly, that, that's why the power flipped and suddenly the board was empowered to, to actually do something. So where is Adam Newman now and how rich is he? I was going to say, like, he's, he's backed. It's a, it's a great question because, I mean, when you look at the power dynamics, he's backed into a corner. He's essentially pushed out of this company he co-founded, yet he the company comes close to imploding. Thousands of people are laid off, yet he negotiates this exit package for himself and he is you know more than a paper billionaire now i think it's fair to say he's a true billionaire i mean he's cashed he was able to sell a lot of his shares they gave his soft bank when they took full control of the company kind of rescued it they gave him a 185 million dollar consulting contract so he yeah walked away with a nice you know tidy what is it ten figure sum. <laughs> nice work if you can get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See. See now, like launching a festival called Fire Festival Part Two. Is that like the next <laughs> thing he's doing with that money? <laughs> uh, we, we, we don't. He's tr- he's definitely investing in things. He's sort of trying to to yeah get into real estate stuff. But yeah, um, unclear how exactly he's going to spend it. He clearly wants to be involved in, in startups and, you know, if not running a, a new one, he sort of batted around ideas around apartments. Um, but yes, he, he is not short on money. And what happened to WeWork as a business? It still exists, right? Like before this podcast, I looked up on Google Maps, you know, is there a WeWork near where I live? And at least a couple came up in results. So what's its status now? 
Yeah, so WeWork is 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 quite large by by desk count uh, because of this, you know, ten billion plus of investment that went into it. That actually, even when you spend a lot of it on on buying wave pools and wasting money on you know beer kegs, uh, it turns out you build a lot of offices. So they have a ton of offices. Thanks to the pandemic, they don't have that many tenants, um, but uh, they are you know going to be sort of this early indicator as to how many people go back to the office. I think their, their occupancy is a little over 50% now. Um, it, it really needs to be in the 80% range to be really healthy. Uh, and, you know, they say they're going to get there quickly, but I don't think anyone really knows the future. But it'll be, sort of be this interesting test. I mean, more broadly, I don't think we're going to be talking about them much as sort of like tech reporters uh, in coming years because it's become a real estate company, which is what it was always. And, you know, how many episodes have you devoted to IWG, International Work Group, its competitor? Uh, it's uh, <laughs> um, and, and forgive me if you've done a lot. Um, Putting a pin in that one. That's a great idea. Thanks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I imagine it, it, they'll they'll make some noise because it's it's uh, a, a, a brand we all sort of know. Um, but uh, going forward, I mean, it, it's it's going to be a, a more staid office space subleasing company. Um, at least that's what I would expect. But it remains very on trend because it is set to go public later this summer through a SPAC. It was announced <laughs> to go <through> SPAC. <laughs> back for the trendy thing of uh, 2021. So right. presumably if all goes according to plan and we don't see any reason not to, it will be a publicly traded company uh, in within a month or two. And, and very quickly explain for our listeners, those who have not been following special purpose acquisition companies, what a SPAC is. Missing out. <laughs> so a SPAC is basically a pool of capital that a group of investors go out and raise on the public markets. And that pool of capital is, you don't know it's a blank check essentially to go out and acquire a, co a private company and take it public through this vehicle. And it's been a super trendy thing on Wall Street. And we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of crazy companies go public through these vehicles and a lot of normal good companies, but there's just been a tremendous amount of money devoted to these SPACs. And, Maybe yet a different sign of frothiness in the market right now. SPACs are the new soft bank. <laughs> yes. And I also look forward to seeing WeWork at some point put on the blockchain as an NFT or something <laughs> like that. All right. Uh, thank you so much for that recap. Let's take another quick break and then we'll come back with recommendations. Maureen, let's start with you. What is your recommendation for our Gadget Lab listeners? Okay, this is not at all new, but um, I was just, Schitt's Creek kind of got me through the pandemic. I was uh, late to it, but and it took a little while to get into it, but it just is like the greatest show ever. It's so funny. It's made me so happy and I wish I had never watched it so I could start at the beginning and rewatch it again. And I'm so envious of people who have not watched it yet and can just jump in. Yes, hard endorse. Also, I'm liking that we're keeping like uh, on theme here with like real estate, you know, because they like lose their home and then they're in the motel. Yeah. Um, did you watch yeah. this, this Netflix special um, where they went behind the scenes at the end of season six? No, I haven't. Ooh, I still have something left to watch. Yes, <laughs> it is so good. I mean, tears. Yes, you have to watch that. <laughs> All right, that's awesome. Um, Elliot, what's your recommendation? 
Um, I also not terribly new, but um, I recently listened to uh, podcast Fiasco, uh, which is by a friend on the season on Iran Contra, uh, which uh, I knew nothing about and is totally fascinating. Um, where essentially we were, God, I'm already going to mess this up. Um, we were selling, uh, you know, trading drugs for, for money for arms um, to uh, involving Iran and Contras in Latin America uh, and Oliver North and Reagan and a whole bunch of uh, fun Senate hearings that uh, were like this huge scandal, but that really sort of like slipped through without too much damage. And what's the name of that podcast again? Fiasco, you said? Fiasco. Yeah, it's by disclosure. It's by a friend, Leon Nafok, who did uh, Slow Burn at Slate. Oh, Slow Burn's really good. Nice. So that must be really good. Somewhere in a closet, I have a Shreddam Ollie bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> if you remember, everything was shredded. <laughs> Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, so I want to recommend a streaming music platform. It's called Mixcloud. Uh, I I thought that everybody had heard of this, but I've been telling people about it and I've discovered that a lot of my friends have not heard of it. So I'm going to recommend it here on the show. Um, you may know uh, SoundCloud as a place where like DJs were putting their mixes up for a lot of years. So if you're into like electronic music or if you, you know, you listen to DJs who post a lot of like jazz and hip hop and reggae and stuff, you would for a long time find a lot of that on SoundCloud. In recent years, SoundCloud has shifted its business model to be more about people who create original work and less about people who post mixes and DJs and stuff like that. So a lot of DJs have moved over to Mixcloud. Mixcloud has been around almost as long as SoundCloud, but its platform is geared towards people who make mixes. And uh, there's just a wealth of amazing stuff on there if you like hip hop, if you like acid jazz, if you like, you know, 1960s soul, if you like rock steady, if you like uh, Psy Trance, Burning Man music, it's all on there. Uh, you can follow the tags to find people that you like. You follow them. You see what they're listening to. You get new recommendations. Uh, it's a global community. So there's a lot of stuff from Europe and Latin America and Asia. It's really wonderful. Uh, it's a platform. It's free to listen. There are like, you know, paid tiers, but you get a lot out of it for free. So that's my recommendation. Uh, if you're looking for some adventures in, uh, you know, sonic hour-long journeys, check out Mixcloud. Lauren, what is your recommendation? I'm going to stick with the real estate theme this week, and I'm going to recommend a website called The Listings Project. It's actually a newsletter, and it's run by Stephanie Diamond, who's an artist and an entrepreneur and a community builder. And it's this inclusive, artist-focused newsletter um, for residential rentals and sublets, often temporary. And in some cases, you can find an artist studio or a workspace on there as well. And it's in a bunch of cities around the U.S., some cities in Europe. And it's just a nice way to check out select pre-vetted listings um, for people who are looking for temporary solutions to their living situations. So I imagine during the pandemic, it was probably pretty popular because people became a little bit more mobile with remote work. And sometimes we're looking for, you know, I want to stay in a city for four months because it's a good amount of time to like work remotely and maybe settle in and quarantine as needed and then maybe move somewhere else. Um, people were looking for like apartment swaps and shares that would work for them. And um, yeah, I just, I get this newsletter every Wednesday in my inbox. I always enjoy clicking on the links and seeing what people are, you know, offering in this, in this, 
you know, nifty website. And so I recommend the Listings Project if you are looking for uh, temporary housing or temporary apartments um, as part of sort of like an inclusive artist's focused community. Very nice. Yeah. All right. That's our show this week. Uh, thanks so much to Elliot Brown and Maureen Farrell for joining us. As a reminder, their new book is called The Cult of We. Uh, we really enjoyed having you both on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, if you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes and we'll include our Twitter handles. The show is produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth and we'll be back next week. Thanks again for listening. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.